Alpha is a six-week course exploring the big questions of life. It's for anyone interested in discussing spirituality, God, and the Christian faith in a non-judgmental, open-minded context. Each week, there's a great meal, a short talk, and discussion in small groups. People who come to the course are from lots of different backgrounds. No faith, other faiths, brought up Christian and agnostic. Everyone is welcome. Catch up on each week's talk here. Uh, hey, really nice to see you all. Welcome uh, back for those of you who are here last week and uh, really warm welcome uh, to those who are uh, here for the first time. It's great to have you with us. Last week was kind of introductory, so um, if you are just uh, diving in this week, don't feel like you have missed too much. Um, but let me just give you a quick um, overview of the evening. So this is a, a six-week course um, that we run as a church, but it's not church. It's an opportunity for people to um, hear about what we believe uh, the Christian faith is, but also sort of questions about God and spirituality and things like that. And really an open forum for people to discuss anything and everything. So uh, there's a meal, 7 till 7.30 more or less, uh, and then a short talk from me, uh, which you're just about to hear. And then uh, discussion groups, and we'll be in the same discussion groups each time. I'll say a little bit more about that um, afterwards, but it's really an opportunity. It's not, do you know the right answer? How's your biblical knowledge? It's not Sunday school tick. It's really an opportunity for you to speak for yourself. So there'll be people here uh, of no faith, people here of other faiths, people here who are sort of agnostic, grown up with some sort of Christian upbringing or not, or uh, uh, grown up in a different faith. And then there'll be people who are Christians, but they want to kind of get to know people and, um, uh, and kind of actually maybe move on from a childhood or um, parental experience of faith to actually do I believe this myself, those sorts of things. So uh, all to say, uh, there's a, a whole range of people here and you're all very welcome. Please uh, feel free to say anything you like. You can disagree with absolutely everything I say. Uh, you can um, disagree with other people in your group. Just be nice, try to be nice, but you know, if they say something ridiculous, uh, you can point out that they've said something ridiculous in a nice way. Uh, um, but yeah, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, so, quick recap of last week. Uh, I um, basically just talked a little bit about my own experience of uh, religion growing up and how I became a Christian, went from being an atheist, uh, an agnostic atheist, uh, to actually having quite a dramatic experience of um, it being real, really against my will. None of my friends were were Christians, uh, they all thought I was going through a stage because I started going to church, but I um, found it compelling and I couldn't resist it even though I wanted to. Uh, and I've come to sort of um, believe that actually what I found that was um, what authentic Christianity is really about, which is concerned with the questions that we're all interested in. Who are we and what are we for? I think that's um, something that's sort of at the heartbeat of most human beings. Is there purpose to life? What am I uh, on this planet for? Is there meaning? Uh, and I think Christianity is uniquely interested in those questions and has some interesting answers. Um, at the end of the course, actually after the fifth week, we have a day away, which I mentioned last week. Uh, we go to Ojai, the center of all spiritual things. Uh, and uh, we just have a day away there. And the um, theme of that day is the experience of God. Is, there, is it possible to experience God for myself? Uh, and we look at the person of the Holy Spirit. You can put it in your calendars. It's October. No, it's not. It's September the 21st. It's a Saturday, 3rd, 23rd. It's a Saturday. Uh, very low-key, a good time to kind of hang out. But um, people really enjoy that. I know it might feel like 
I'm definitely not going to that. That would be the thing I do not go to. But people do really enjoy it, so I'm just going to throw that out there. Anyway, uh, as I said last week, human purpose is obviously very important in life, um, as are intimate, loving relationships. But the Christian claim is none of these things are actually big enough even though they are vital for us, then none of them are big enough to fully define us. We need something more. And um, what uh, Christianity holds out is that uh, the true um, meaning of life, the true fullness of life is found in God. He, only he is big enough to actually fully define us, to tell us who we are, to give us purpose and meaning. And we see who God actually is in the person of Jesus which can lead people to ask two, I think, very important questions. Well, why would you believe that Jesus is this person at all? What's, what reason would you put faith in him? Is there any evidence, historical or otherwise, to think he was anything other than a person? And if it is true, how can it actually affect my life? How can it change my life? Often people look at Christians and think, they're worse than everyone else. Why would I want to join that group? Uh, so these two questions, how can I experience it and is it true, are going to kind of make up the rest of the five weeks that we have together. And tonight I want to address primarily that first question. Why would anyone believe in Jesus? Why would anyone put faith in Jesus? Is there any historical evidence? Is it all just made up fairy tales? Now, to start with, I want to acknowledge that for some objective questioning, like where's the evidence? <laughs> is what really excites them. This is what they love, the objective truth questions. Uh, they are, I can never quite remember, is it right brain or left brain? I think they're right brain type people. But for others, it's much more about what does it make me feel? My subjective feelings are important. Does it work? I don't care if it's true. I want to know that it will have a proper, tangible difference to me. Tonight is mainly about the first lot of questions, the objective questions. But whilst this may not be as appealing to some people as others, I think it's very important for all of us. Subjective feelings, as I'm sure you're aware, cannot always be relied upon, can they? They are fickle mistresses. Uh, consider, after all, the, um, the throes of young love, your first crush. Put, bring your minds back to middle school, maybe the end of elementary school, maybe high school for some people, but your first crush. You see the person and you think, yes, it's them. You write their name on your notebook. If they have an I in their name, you put a heart instead of the dot on the I. And then they show interest in you and you show interest in them. And then you think about what it would be like to kiss them. And then you actually do kiss them. And it's greater than anything that could ever have possibly happened. And you are together. And then a few weeks later, mercilessly, heartlessly, they dump you never ever to talk to you again and you are heartbroken you're crushed and the whole world is falling apart and then fast forward a few years and perhaps you bump into your old flame and they've let themselves go they are no longer the person you believe them to be and you can start to think what on earth was i doing i dodged a bullet there because of course our subjective feelings are fickle they change with moods. We can't always rely on them. So it is with God. Objective arguments, on the other hand, can be returned to over and over again. 
and we can assess them for their validity. I feel amazing when I go to church is obviously great, or I feel amazing in this spiritual setting, I feel amazing when I feel connected to something beyond me is obviously great, don't we all want that? But if that is all our faith, our spirituality is based on, we're on shaky ground when we don't feel so amazing when we're in church or in this spiritual setting or whatever. I've considered the evidence that, for instance, Jesus is who he said he is, and I have found it convincing, on the other hand, is something that we can always go back to irrespective of what we're feeling or what's going on with the world. So, with that said, let us consider what faith is and what faith isn't. There are actually very few things that we can be 100% absolutely certain about. Things like 2 plus 2 equals 4. 2 plus 2 does really equal 4, I promise you. The angles of a triangle really do add up to 180 degrees. That is an objective fact. However, basing our life on those sorts of things it doesn't really encompass the whole of the human experience, does it? For everything else, everything else, we are operating with faith. We're operating with faith when we get on the 101. We're operating in faith when we decide what to have for lunch. We are operating in faith, most importantly, when we decide what shoes to buy and what to pair them with. This is all faith. We are all operating by faith all of the time. We cannot be 100% certain, so we use faith. And I will suggest that this is quite obvious to us all if you considered the fact that none of you checked the chair that you were sitting on to see if there was a bomb under it, right? Not one of you. Not one of you, or did you? No one checked to see if there was a bomb under your chair because you operated with faith. You said, there probably isn't a bomb under my chair, but you couldn't be certain because we are creatures of faith. Christian faith works in exactly the same way. It is not absolute certainty. But that does not mean that it is blind hope either. It's not about shoving our heads in the sand and going, please don't confuse me with the facts. I've got faith, and faith's all I need. So don't tell me that something might not actually be true because I've got faith. Christian faith, in fact, is born out of a conviction, an initial conviction about the person of Jesus. But it's something that grows, as with all faith, the more that those initial convictions are proved to be true or are given evidence to be true, both objectively and subjectively. Consider my relationship with my wife, Hannah. When we got married, how much faith did either of us have in each other? Not that much. We had quite a lot of faith, but not that much because no one ever knows what they're doing when they get married. But over time, our faith in each other has grown the more we've seen that actually that initial conviction was quite a good idea. We have had arguments and we've had fights and we've um, had uh, extraordinary expressions of love and closeness and we've had kids together and we have grown in faith for one another the more we've seen that actually they are the person that I always hoped they would be. So it is with Jesus. So, back to the question then. Why would anyone put their faith in this person at all. Now, people who come on Alpha, as I said, come from various different um, backgrounds and different ideas about what Jesus is like. Some people think that he never really existed, but for some reason we talk to children about him at Christmas. He's like a Christmas tradition, like Christmas ham and Christmas presents and Christmas <laughs> arguments, that's what we do. 
Others think of him as sort of this effeminate kind of um, wimpy type of person. He sort of floats uh, above the ground. If he were to throw a ball, he'd throw it like this. Uh, slightly devoid of um, real personality, not really uh, that interesting at all. He wouldn't have been much use in a fight. Other people uh, actually have a very aggressive reaction whenever Jesus Christ is mentioned in conversation. Don't necessarily know why. Perhaps it's because he seems to want to devote himself to making sure that you devote yourselves to him. Maybe he's got a bit of a, a complex. Um, but often people can suddenly go, I don't want to talk, why, why do you want to talk about Jesus? I don't want to talk about Jesus out of nowhere. Um, some people have never really thought about Jesus Christ at all, or have no real opinion on him. Some claim Jesus is the sort of spokesperson for their social agenda of the day in the 60s. He was often held to be a sort of Che Guevara sort of figure, someone who would liberate the poor. I think in a city like LA, Jesus is often put in the category of wise philosopher or guru. He has uh, some interesting and right on things to say about tolerance. Uh, he's a new age teacher of wisdom, uh, but perhaps um, that's it. Now, whilst all of these beliefs are commonplace, I want to suggest that they actually don't really stack up when we consider the evidence of Jesus of Nazareth. First of all, the question of his existence. There is infinitely more evidence for his life and teaching than for pretty much the rest of classical antiquity put together. Alongside the New Testament uh, evidence, the material about Jesus, he is attested to by uh, the first century Jewish historian Josephus and by three first century, first to second century Roman historians, Pliny, Suetonius and Tacitus, all saying that this was a Jesus figure and that he was crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And so the evidence for his existence, that Jesus of Nazareth was an actual person who lived and did some things, that he was crucified, and that the belief about him being more than that rose up pretty soon after that crucifixion is so um, full on that no historian worth their salt would ever question that he actually lived. Of course, we know most about who Jesus of Nazareth is from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, which are found in the New Testament. Let me tell you a little bit about these. Jewish historians at the time uh, tended to collect four lives of the people that they wanted to record. And they would then let the reader synthesize these four different accounts so that they would have a full picture. And that's what we really have um, with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In this ancient form, writers would focus on the birth, the teaching, the main events of the person that they were depicting. And so the texts that we have them as they are now were written down uh, about 30 and um, 50 in the case of uh, John's Gospel after um, Jesus' birth, so well within the lifetime and span of those who saw him teach, did his things, and could corroborate the evidence. And they were all based on eyewitness accounts. Mark's uh, source is uh, Peter, and uh, he uh, is the, probably the biggest influence over the four Gospels. Now, of course, there are discrepancies within the Gospels. Uh, the Gospel writers clearly have editorial and theological uh, agendas with what they are writing, um, but that doesn't mean that they felt free to make anything up. 
And now other parts of the New Testament are even uh, earlier compositions uh, within even 15 years of Jesus' death. So the beliefs about Jesus and who he was and what he had done, and particularly his resurrection, were very early. There's no ugly great ditch between what Jesus did and what he said and what Jesus did and said was written down. So the issue is not really whether Jesus said and did these things, but that Jesus said and did the things that the Gospels present. Because what Jesus said and did is, by any extension, extraordinary. That is a problem that we have to try and resolve. Here's a little taster for those of you who need a refresher. Jesus forgave people's sins. Jesus was a good Jewish person and he forgave people's sins. Now in the Jewish faith, only Yahweh God can forgive sins. Jesus also claimed to be without sin himself. Again, only Yahweh God was sinless. At the end of his main piece of ethical teaching that we can read for ourselves, Jesus says, anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys me is wise. He doesn't see anyone who listens to God's teaching and obeys God is wise. He says, anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys me is wise. He also said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Jesus was happy to be worshipped. Just try and um, think of someone, maybe they're in the public eye, who has um, a large following, a sort of cult-like following. Just try and think of someone, it might be difficult, but just try and think of someone that may be appearing regularly in the news or so someone who has a large following. Consider that person who has obviously um, brought up a huge following. How likely, how uncomfortable would this person be if people actually started worshipping this person as the one true God. It's quite a thing. Jesus, though, was more than happy to be worshipped as God, the God, the only God. Most religious point, uh, leaders point away from themselves and towards God. Jesus, the perfect example of humility, nevertheless told everyone it was all about him. He was also happy to have prayer directed to him and commanded people to pray in his name. Jesus invited people to put their faith in him and he praised them when they did. Jesus taught that what people did to him, they did to God. But this doesn't appear to make Jesus of Nazareth aloof. He spent the majority of his time with the unlovable, the social, the political and the religious outcasts, dispensing grace and kindness words of favour and championing the poor and the lonely. He washed his own disciples' feet. And Jesus is also said to enact his claims to divinity in various miraculous ways, to have fed 5,000 people, to have walked on water. He is said to have calmed a storm. Jesus has extraordinary supernatural power to heal the sick, free people from evil and raise the dead. He also appears to fulfill hundreds upon hundreds of Jewish prophecies written centuries earlier. And it's quite difficult to fulfill the prophecies, for instance, surrounding the, the uh, location of your birth. You don't have much control over that. Now, the Gospels clearly present Jesus as being fully human. He worked and he ate. He experienced human emotions like hunger and sadness but they report the miraculous supernatural events of his life in exactly the same way as pieces of history, not as myth or as story, but as matters of historical fact. So when uh, I started exploring Christianity, I started reading about Jesus. I read all four Gospels. 
And I tried to read the Bible before, as I said last week, and I found it the most boring thing in the whole world. I wouldn't know why anyone would touch it. But that now, having gone to an actual real church, met some actual real Christians, and actually heard some um, good preaching from someone who clearly believed and was intelligent, I was like, I'm hooked. I'm interested in this. And I started reading the Gospels. And it was like, all of a sudden, Jesus of Nazareth leapt off the page. He became real. I thought, this is, this is a compelling. I'm finding this very compelling. And I want to explore more. Perhaps he actually is who he says he is. But if a push had come to shove at that time in my life, I think I could have explained it all away. Maybe the gospel writers made it up. Maybe the years of history, it's all sort of um, kind of been uh, distorted by the church and things like that. Maybe Jesus wasn't what he, what he was. It's, I, I can still get out of this if I need to. But then I heard a talk about the evidence for the resurrection. And this was the thing that got me. Because I was like, I have not got a better, a better conclusion, solution to the issue of the resurrection than this. And I'm going to try very hard to find one, but I can't. And so I found myself going, I am actually compelled. Intellectually and historically, I am compelled that this is true. And so I've got to become a Christian. I did not want to become a Christian, but I felt like I was forced to because of the weight of evidence. And in fact, it's the resurrection that all the very first Christians considered to be the basis on which the Christian faith stands or falls. The early church leader, the Apostle Paul, makes the point. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Jesus has not been raised, we are wasting our time. I'm so sorry, we could be doing something else right now because our faith is useless. And so is the preaching. And so I genuinely think the most important question in the whole world is, did Jesus rise from the dead? What do you think? It's a rhetorical question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? That's the question I want to try and concentrate on for the rest of this talk, if you don't mind. And I want to do it by considering some of the most common alternative explanations for the facts. Um, after university, I didn't know what to, I was going to do with my life, and uh, I ended up working in advertising, uh, which it turned out I wasn't very good at. Uh, but previously, I thought I'd quite like to be a lawyer, and then uh, I realized how much work it would take to be a lawyer, and I thought, I'll go with advertising. But if you don't mind, this is my attempt to be a lawyer for a little bit. This is my little role-playing. I've just brought you into my role-play. I hope that's okay. But what I'm going to suggest is that I will present a case. I know, this is very sad, isn't it? And you can be the jury, okay? Members of the jury, good. Uh, would that be all right? Good, thank you very much. So, members of the jury, how do we explain it? First of all, the facts upon which all people agree, uh, friend and foe alike. Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem under the authority of Pontius Pilate around 33 AD. Very soon after this, his followers began to claim that he had risen three days later and had appeared to hundreds of different people on various different occasions. So how do we explain it? I'm just aware that there are actually lawyers in the room. Uh, I apologize unreservedly. Anyway, alternative number one. Jesus was not dead in the first place. Flogging and crucifixion, though, were enough to kill most people. 
a Roman flogging was supposed to um, put you within inches of your life. Often people died just from the flogging. Jesus received a flogging and then carried a cross uh, outside the walls of Jerusalem towards the place where crucifixion happened in Golgotha until he couldn't bear it anymore and they had to find someone else because he was going to die on the way. Nevertheless, even if Jesus hadn't actually died from the flogging, hadn't died from the crucifixion, even if he'd managed to display some sort of supernatural strength, surely wrapping his body up like a mummy, loading it down with, tons, uh, with, with pounds and pounds of spices and then sealing him in an airtight tomb for a couple of days would probably have finished the job off. How could he then take off the bandages, roll away the stone, overpower the guards who had been stationed outside the thing, wander back into Jerusalem and say to his disciples, I am the Lord of life, without the extensive medical treatments that would just not have been available to him then. So, alternative number two. Jesus was dead, but the disciples stole the body. Now, this has always been the claim of Jewish authorities, and it's referred to at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Guards had been posted to keep watch over the tomb to ensure that no one else could tamper with the body or steal it. And when it becomes clear that Jesus' body is not there, it is the religious authorities who tell the guards to say that the disciples stole it whilst they were asleep. The guards asleep, not the disciples. But the problem is, Roman guards just didn't fall asleep. As a quirk of history, we happen to have a huge amount of information about what happens to Roman guards if just one number amongst them falls asleep. The idea, and it's pretty bad, it's like being um, burnt alive, having your skin peeled off, that sort of thing. So the idea that not just one person, but the whole guard, and it was at least four, could have been 16, maybe even more people stationed at the tomb, they all fell asleep so that the disciples could steal the body, is just so improbable as to not be worth considering. But the most important thing about this claim, the idea that the disciples stole the body, is that it proves that neither the Jewish religious authorities nor the Roman authorities had the body. Because if they had the body, when the disciples started going, Jesus is alive, he's raised from the dead, they could have very easily gone, oh, is he? Is he now? Because, look, here is his body, throw it down in the marketplace, decomposing, and say, he's not very alive, is he? Go away. Um, first century Jerusalem uh, has some similarities with Jerusalem now, a sort of um, place where there's quite a lot of um, uh, religious and uh, social uh, sort of um, bubbling. And the whole reason for crucifying Jesus in the first place was because the Romans didn't want any of this trouble, and neither did the Jewish authorities. And so the last thing they wanted was people then going, oh, wait a second, it's all back. The whole Christian thing is back because, look, we've got a resurrected Jesus. If they could, they would have quashed it as soon as they possibly could. It was in both the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities' interest to put a lid on this straight away. But they couldn't because they didn't have the body. So perhaps the guards weren't asleep, but the disciples overpowered them anyway. But... These are trained and armed professional Roman guards we're talking about. The disciples themselves had not been expecting the resurrection. Whenever Jesus talked about the resurrection, they didn't really know what he was talking about. When he was arrested, they fled. 
They were leaderless, they were disillusioned, they were hardly in any position. Only one of them stayed to see him killed. Hardly in a position to go, oh, actually, guys, let's go and overpower this Roman guard and get the body out, and then we can just make up a resurrection. So, alternative number three. Jesus was dead. The disciples didn't steal the body, but they invented the resurrection. Again, the disciples weren't expecting the resurrection, and this theory does not account for the empty tomb, and any alternative theory about the resurrection must account for an empty tomb. But in any case, the disciples deliberately inventing the resurrection claim is psychologically improbable. Do people, members of the jury, do they die for something they know to be untrue? Particularly, do people die for something they know to be without a doubt is untrue because they themselves were the ones who made it up in the first place? All but one of Jesus' disciples, as a matter of history, went on to die for the resurrection claim. Now, throughout history, of course, lots of people have died for causes they believe in. What unites them, though, is their wholehearted belief, however misguided that belief is, but their wholehearted belief in what they are dying for. Surely Peter, who was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way as the God he had seen crucified beforehand, surely he believed in what he was dying for. Furthermore, to invent an incredible lie of this kind, and it would be inventing a lie, would have gone against the whole force of Jesus' teaching. And it's utterly inconsistent with the disciples' own teaching, which we can read for ourselves in the New Testament. It tells us 187 times that Jesus is the truth, that Christianity is the truth, and it exhorts Christians to tell the truth in all circumstances. But it's made up on a whole lie. So, fourth and final alternative, members of the jury. Jesus did die. The disciples didn't steal the body. The disciples didn't invent the resurrection claim, but the disciples were deluded. The delusion theory falls down for a couple of reasons. To begin with, delusions are highly subjective. If I am delusional and truly believe that I am Optimus Prime, leader of the Autobots, it is highly unlikely that if you're delusional, you will be deluded in the same way. You're more likely to think you're Amazon Prime, leader of online retailing and tax evasion. The medical evidence is just that people do not hallucinate the same thing at the same time. The resurrection claim, though, encompasses several appearances to large numbers of people at different places and on different occasions over quite a period of time, all saying exactly the same thing. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Again, the mass delusion idea doesn't account for the empty tomb, and any alternative theory must account for the empty tomb. And finally, it doesn't account for one other vital piece of evidence. Lots of people die for their beliefs, as we've established. There are some very principled people in the world, are there not? Whatever we think about the causes that they go after, we must agree that they are very principled people. Peter, though, was not one of them. How do we know? Well, Peter had the opportunity to die for his beliefs when Jesus was arrested. He even said 
I will die with you before he was arrested. And he has the opportunity. Here you go, Peter. You can die with Jesus, the person you have devoted your whole self to at this opportunity when you are arrested by the Romans. But instead, what does Peter do? He runs away as a coward. He denies even knowing to Jesus, knowing Jesus in the face of a pretty simple question from a 13-year-old slave girl. Because Peter is a coward. We know this. We could read about Peter being a coward. And yet, later, Peter becomes a fearless preacher of Jesus in the face of torture, imprisonment, and ultimately his own crucifixion. So something clearly happened to Peter, to this man. He went from coward to dying for his belief. What happened? Fortunately, Peter tells us exactly what it is. This Jesus, he says, whom you crucified has been raised from the dead and we are witnesses. We cannot help but speak about what we've seen and heard. Now, if I was to die for my belief in Jesus, it would be because of my faith. I have not seen the risen Jesus. I would be going on faith. I would be dying for my faith. Peter, on the other hand, says, I cannot help it because I've seen it. It's not faith. I have seen him. I can't help but talk about this because I've seen it. What changes Peter from deserting coward to fearless pre preacher is not delusion. It's not his own fabricated resurrection story. But I want to suggest, members of the jury, it's because he's seen that Jesus, however extraordinary we might think it is, Jesus resurrected from the dead. And let me make it clear, what we are not saying here and what we are not attesting is a scientific claim. Do dead men rise? We can't test for resurrection in the laboratory. What we are assessing here is a historical claim. Did this one dead person on this one occasion in history rise from the dead? What do you think? The most important question in the world. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If he did, it necessarily gives a whole load of credence and corroboration to the things that he did, the miracles and the healings. And it also gives a whole lot of evidence and corroboration to the things that he said about himself. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If you've seen me, you've seen God. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I've come that you might have fullness of life. I am the resurrection. And importantly, it gives us real historical objective reasoning to put our faith in him. Now, no one has to put their faith in him. No one's going to force you to do anything. But if you actually believe, you should put your faith in him. If you do not believe, do not put your faith in him. That would be silly. If you do, though, put your faith in him because you believe, because that makes the most sense of the evidence that we have. So it's not really about what makes us feel great all the time. It would be great to feel great all the time, wouldn't it? It's not about whether Jesus necessarily answers all your prayers in the way you want them answered or helps you to win the Oscar that you so desperately deserve. I really do believe that. You do deserve it. It's not about that. It's about him being the risen eternal son of God. The one actually that we're all looking for. 
And it does have, if it is true, huge implications for what else might be open to us. That if what he says is true, that meaning and purpose could be found in him, that healing and, and restoration could be ours, that death is not the end, that there's hope for the world, and that actually we can be changed into the people that we now and again sense we could be. The perfect, beautiful, glorious version of you that the resurrected God is saying, let me put your life in my hands and let me change you. But also, and I'm going to end with this, I know I've gone on, it does help to explain all the stories. 2,000 years of stories. Extraordinary stories of Jesus. The resurrected Lord continuing to operate in supernatural ways in time and space. How do we explain the stories? The book of Acts is a record of the very first Christians continuing the works of Jesus. They heal the sick, they, they raise people from the dead, doing all the same things that Jesus had done amongst them. How do we explain it? And it carries on. You can read about it throughout Christian history. I know some churches have decided for reasons known only to themselves that no, we shouldn't do anything supernatural. And yet, supernatural things carry on in the name of Jesus throughout all history. I had never seen anything supernatural in my whole life before I walked into a church. And then I started seeing things that I could not explain. And I got very excited about it. In one of my first services, this mother got up at the front in floods of tears because her son had just um, uh, uh, contracted meningitis and was in a um, seriously critical condition. The doctors had given him no chance. And she said, would you please just pray for me? And I, for, for about two weeks, everyone just gathered together to pray for this boy. It's called Tommy. I still know him. Because after two weeks, the doctor said, we have no explanation for this. He is completely fine. No lasting brain damage. Nothing wrong with him at all. And we thought this was over. What have you been doing? And she said, we've been praying. My whole church has been praying. Now, could be um, coincidence. Certainly could be coincidence. But then I thought, well, I, I want to test this. I want to try these things for myself. So I went to Belgium, uh, which is obviously where you should test these things. Uh, if you've ever been to Belgium, you'll know uh, that this is not where you should test these things. I went to Belgium. I'd become a Christian, and I was uh, working for a church. And I'd been asked to go and talk to a church about um, the supernatural power of God. What I didn't know was that no one in that church actually wanted to hear about the supernatural power of God at all. And they did not like me. That was very clear from the start. You can probably understand why. Uh, but I decided, anyway, I'm going to tell them about the supernatural power of God. And nothing happened. Not one thing. They were just like, I can't wait for this guy to go. Uh, and so it came to the Sunday morning, which was the final session. And I was so exhausted with the whole thing that I actually asked someone who had never spoken before ever in any public setting to give my sermon for me instead because I couldn't, this, I'm a coward. Uh, so she did it. It was a very good sermon, not very well delivered. Uh, but anyway, she did it and then it was all finishing. But because it said in my script, would anyone like to stand and we'll pray for healing for people, she said that. And so actually a few people stood for healing, which was very annoying because I wanted to go home. And I was about to leave, and I felt like God speak to me. And I felt like he said to me, you should go and pray for this woman who's at the back. She hadn't actually stood. She was sitting in her chair. 
And I said, well, fair enough, I'll go and, I'll go and pray. So I, I went over to her and I asked her to stand and I said, would you mind if I pray for you? And uh, she said, um, fine, she was probably in her late 60s, something like that, and she stood there. And as I was praying, I felt like I could see in my mind's eye that there was pain in her stomach. Uh, and I said, I can see that there's pain in your stomach. Would it be okay to place my hand over your hand and I'll pray uh, for your stomach? She placed my hand on your hand, your hands on your stomach and I'll pray for it. And she started crying and she said, I'd love that. And so I started praying for um, the pain in her stomach to go. Uh, and she started crying quite a lot and seeming to have this quite a powerful experience. I didn't think much, much of it. I just thought, well, that was nice. She's obviously something traumatic's happened and it's pretty painful, so it's good to pray for her. But I said, in the name of Jesus, I just pray that you'd be completely healed because he's alive and he's resurrected and he has power. And then I went back to England and I never went back to Belgium. But I got an email on the Monday and I want to get uh, the details right. Uh, it was an email from um, uh, the church saying, you prayed for a woman. I want to tell you about that woman. This woman had recently been diagnosed with cancer. She'd had cancer in one breast that had spread to another breast that had then um, spread all the way uh, up and down her spinal column and in, into her pancreas, and her pancreas was full of cancer. And I don't know much about cancer, but it, I, I, I'm told that pancreatic cancer is pretty, is pretty much where it gets very serious. The doctors were very worried. She was due on that Monday morning to um, go and have a final scan and the preparations for a double mastectomy, but they were basically saying, we don't think there's much hope for this. What the email said was, the tumour count um, throughout has dropped to 25, which is in the normal range for a healthy person. Secondary cancer in her spine was completely gone, no sign of it at all. Secondary cancer in her neck was completely gone, no sign of it at all. The pancreatic cancer was gone. Not any cancer at all in the, in the pancreas. The doctors couldn't believe it. They thought their MRI machine had broken. So they sent her to another hospital to have another MRI scan to make sure, but still no pancreatic cancer at all. The cancer that had spread from one breast to the other was completely gone in one breast and was so reduced, so small in the other breast, they just did a bit of localized surgery, took it out, and it was all gone. I stayed in touch with her uh, over years, and uh, it never returned. Now, I thought I was just praying for some emotional hurt that she might be holding in her body. I didn't even know what I was praying for, but I did believe that Jesus heals people because I'd seen it. And I have lots more stories. I could tell you, I could go on and on and on and on, and it get very boring. Now, it might all be coincidence, right? It might all be coincidence. My sister-in-law was in a car crash, and uh, she, uh, it was such a bad car crash, she had no idea what was happened. The car was completely crushed. Uh, she was um, in ICU for a long time, was in a coma for, for a long time. Um, she couldn't, had no use of her legs. Her whole uh, lungs were crushed. Um, uh, she couldn't speak. Uh, amazingly, she came out of hospital, but she still didn't, still didn't have the use of her voice box. Uh, she came on a, a day away, like the one we're going to do in Ojai, uh, and um, people prayed for her. And uh, she couldn't speak, and people were praying that she would be able to speak again. The, again, the doctors had said, we, we just don't know you. They're completely crushed. She woke up in the middle of the night, having not been able to make any sound at all for something like six months. Woke up in the middle of the night, just singing out loud praises to Jesus. 
full voice out of nowhere. Might all be coincidence. The issue is, I could do more and more of these stories. And then we could hear from other people who've heard these sorts of stories, and we could hear their best stories. And then we could hear their best stories and their friends' best stories. And after a while, you've got to say, is it all, right, if just one of them is true, does that not say something about the power of God? Now, the reason I do this is because I want people to experience the real thing. Church in this country, church all over the world, is such a waste of time for most of it. This is not a waste of time. This is the power of the living God, the Jesus who was resurrected. Now, you don't have to believe. You do not have to believe. But if you do, I would believe. Because what world might this open up where actually the resurrection power of Jesus not only completely transforms your life, but transforms all the people around you? I am aware of those who have prayed over and over again for people to be healed and not experienced any healing. My dad had a long fight with dementia that just got worse and worse and worse. The more I prayed, the worse it got. I prayed every day for him. And he, he died and it was horrible and traumatic. So I don't want to suggest that it's, oh, it's all happy stories. I know the pain in order to have a theology of healing, we have to have a theology of suffering, because the two go hand in hand, and Jesus knows full well all about suffering. And yet, I carry on praying for healing, and I carry on praying for the power of the resurrection, because I've seen it. And I just want more of it. 